Hey friends, Zach and Dustin here from the Retro Game Guys podcast. Today we have the pleasure of interviewing a very special guest. So if you grew up with the NES, Super Mario Brothers, and Nintendo Power Magazine like we did, there's a name that you will surely recognize. It's Howard Phillips, the Game Master. Woohoo! Yes. Now Howard was Nintendo's most prominent spokesman here in the U.S. during the golden age of the NES, and his Game Master persona, a friendly guy with a bow tie and mad gaming skills, was someone who all of us kids wanted to be. But Howard was much more than just the public face of Nintendo back in the day, as we will learn much more about in the upcoming interview. He played many roles within the company, had a hand in the success of the NES, Super Mario Brothers, and countless other games. He also helped Nintendo evolve from the arcade-focused company that they were in the early 80s to the dominant force in console gaming that they became in later years. It's clear that video gaming would not be what it is today without the work of this man, our new friend, Howard Phillips, the Game Master. So Howard, welcome and thank you so much for being on the Retro Game Guys podcast. Hey, thanks guys for inviting me. Absolutely. So I hope you and your family are staying healthy during this uh, challenging time. I know it hasn't been easy for all of us. Yeah, I hope that for everybody, of course. There you go. Thank you. Well, we're super excited to have you as a guest on this show. And I know our listeners are going to absolutely love hearing from you. So uh, to get us started, wanted to ask you about your early days at Nintendo of America. So you were one of the first NOA employees. You joined uh, the company in 1981 and were employee number five, if our research is correct. Um, what was your first role at Nintendo of America and, and what was it like working there in those very early days? Yeah, um, so I was the fifth person hired um, and I started out just being the warehouse guy. And then after literally a couple of days, I was the um, the warehouse manager, meaning I was responsible for all the inventories. And then a few days later, I was the shipping warehouse manager. <laughs> so I was responsible for shipping everything in and out. And then also responsible for running our test route, which meant uh, uh, Mr. A gave me the keys to the pickup truck and I'd roll an arcade game into it and drive it out to a 7-Eleven or a um, or a mini market, something like that. Yeah. Wow. Well, Mr. Arkawa must have really trusted you. Sounds like those uh, those are some pretty quick promotions. <laughs> uh, it, he and Don James was uh, a friend of mine from school who ended up hiring me, you know, asking if I just wanted to help out for a couple of days. And then, you know, two days later, he said, well, you know, do you want a job? And it'll be oh, this. Yeah. And then that kept changing. Um, but, you know, the nature of Nintendo at that time, it was there was just a couple people walking around the office and we had all this stuff to do, office and warehouse. We had so many things to do that everybody would just do whatever was was needed at the time. And so mm -hmm. we didn't really have titles or anything like that. We just did everything. It was a lot of fun. That definitely almost starts, sounds like a startup, almost in a sense, right? This is pre-startup startup. Yeah, 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 yeah. We didn't call it back then. This was called like a a, a barely there company is what it was called. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, we, we had an episode all about Donkey Kong and we talked a lot about that period of time and Nintendo really, you know, it was a pretty big bet to, you know, open Nintendo of America. And I know you guys had a lot of pressure on you to succeed. Um, yeah, but it didn't, it, well, it didn't feel like pressure because I started, um, right in October. And by then we'd already had a month of sales of, of Donkey Kong and, it, and a month go. of earnings. And so it was doing phenomenally well. Mm. And, you know, I don't think I took a breath until like 
1988 or something like that. <laughs> I mean, things just just grew, hyper growth and, and a, you know, nonstop action activity um, from the very beginning. Great. Well, a few years after you joined Nintendo of America, the NES started rolling out in the U.S. Now, the NES is my favorite game system of all time, so I'm dying to ask you about the launch. So what sure. was it like being a part of that launch? I understand it's a pretty grueling schedule for you, and you also had the distinction, I understand, of picking the launch games for that new system. No no pressure, right? <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Uh, well, so before we launched it, we obviously got the Famicom system at the warehouse. And I opened, you know, a box showed up without any warning and I opened the box from Japan with, with a bunch of other stuff and I opened it up and there was the Famicom. And so I opened that up, plugged it in and started playing it and said, this is awesome because mm -hmm. Um, it had a really good um, port of Donkey Kong on it. I mean, at that time, ports, I mean, you get you get crappy ports, like the kind of thing you'd see on a 7800. <laughs> <laughs> Howard's digging in on me there. Thank you. <laughs> but really, no, there was a huge difference between what you could get in a, a home console versus what you were playing in the arcade. Things have really changed, especially over the last, say, five, ten years. But back then, there was a huge difference. And so when this, you know, in this box, I open it up and there's this white maroon wonky looking little toy machine. I plug it in and the game on the television is like, ex looks almost exactly like the arcade game. It was just a wow moment. So anyway, fast forward, we get a couple games a month would come out from um, Nintendo Japan. They just send more games and, you know, more game and watches, which were the little handhelds they did. Mm -hmm. Um uh, and more of the Famicom games would show up. And I would, of course, play them in my spare time because I worked at a small games company. So when I wasn't loading trucks or recording serial numbers or counting inventory um, or going out to the, to the route to check the earnings on a, on a game, I'd be playing whatever the, the arcade games were that we were uh, assembling in the warehouse, or I'd be uh, um, checking out the new games that had showed up from Nintendo. And so I ended up with about, um, by middle of 85, I ended up with about, uh, I think, 40, 45 games, something like that from Japan. Mm. And a number of them were kind of goofy games that were very, um, very, very childish and young and, and simplistic. And by then, the arcades were getting more sophisticated. We're getting awesome games like Robotron and 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 Zaxxon and 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 all sorts of really great games yeah. and so to get these kind of goofy little games they weren't <laughs> they weren't so exciting but that said there was also some awesome new games were coming on online um the sports games that were coming out of Nintendo for Famicom were better than any of the sports games that you could ever play on a like an Atari um mm -hmm. I mean really the the you know the the baseball game was awesome. The tennis mm -hmm. game was awesome. You know, you'd have this really, we, in the warehouse, have heated matches playing and stuff. Um, so anyway, I sat there. I had this box of games, and Mr. Ar and I'd been pleading with Arakawa for years to, we got to do this. we got to release this system. It's so good. And I was very naive at the time. I really didn't understand the, you know, the market forces and that it was <laughs> that so many people had lost their jobs or near lost their jobs because they'd overordered on uh, crappy games from the Atari 2600 um, mm -hmm. in in '83. So I didn't have, I didn't know any of that. All I knew it was a great game system. I liked playing a bunch of the games, not the cute ones so much. 
And so Arakawa said, so, so we, if we launch this game, which game should we do it? And I said, well, how many games? And he said, you know, fifth, I don't know, a dozen, 15. I said, okay. And I looked at all the games and I just played them really quick and um, each of them really quick just to refresh my memory and, you know, put a list down. And, and that ended up being the launch list for the games for, um, for the NES. Wow. That's fascinating. So I, I uh, uh, my first system was the Atari 2600. So I did make that jump from the 2600 to the Nintendo Entertainment System. And I, yeah, my, that was my experience also was, it was mind blowing, the graphics, the sound, it was I mean, like having an arcade at home. So mm-hmm. yeah, very, very impressed. Um, and of course it's become a lifelong obsession. So <laughs> pretty clear that I liked it. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So my first introduction to you, Howard, was in the pages of the Nintendo Fun Club News, where you were featured as the Nintendo Fun Club president. So how did you become the face of the Fun Club? Um, well, let me think. Number one, um, I was probably Nintendo's biggest fan back then, meaning I played all of the games a lot um, in you know, all my spare time. But also anytime a new game came out, I'd you know, immediately unbox it and plug it in and have the guy loading the truck wait while I maybe played a little bit too long. But uh, because of that, I was just I was just like right on the bleeding edge of what was what was new and what was coming out um, on the system. And at the same time, um, we had a, we had a need to kind of ramp up our connection to um, to players. Um, back then, there was no internet. There was no you know the only way you talked to players was if is if you got them on the phone or you saw them on the street and. We opened up an 800 number so that kids could call in, you know, if they had uh, problems plugging in their machine, that sort of thing. And what turned out happening is that it, almost all the questions were not about how to plug in the machine. It was, you know, how do I beat the hmm. the guy on the third level or where's the hidden, hidden mushroom or the warp whistle or any of those things. So because of that, we had all these questions and we were concerned that we were going to get on the bad side of parents because kids were it was you had to pay for phone calls back then i mean Mm -hmm. now you kind of do but not really but you literally had to you know put out like five bucks if you wanted to talk for five bucks uh, for five minutes to somebody you got my five dollars we were concerned about that so um i think it might have been gail tilden um who is the ad manager at the time um who ended up being the um the uh editor of editor-in-chief of Nintendo Power Magazine. And she was um, part of her idea to just come up with a tips and tricks uh, newsletter where we could um, hopefully get that out to, we could get the kids to give us their information, their mailing information so we could send it out to them. Then we'd also have mailing information so all of those direct mail people could go do their ugly business of filling your mailbox with stuff you don't like (laughs) but also because it would cut down on the number of phone calls that we would get we're getting on you know where's the warp left whistle that sort of thing and so i think i was just a natural again still small company you know so i was just a natural for being a person who would provide that information and they wanted to put a face on the, you know, put a face on it. And I said, sure. When you look at those early issues, what stands out is that how connected you were with your fans. I mean, you ran contests, you had score competitions, fan letters, all of that was awesome. So it was, it was front and center. And it's, it's kind of, uh, it's, it's something that you really couldn't do so much today. I mean, be that hands-on and that face-to-face with, 
with all of your fans. So I yeah, think it's great. And, and I mean, back then, one of the wonderful things about Nintendo, it, again, sorry, Atari fans, it was the only game in town, right? I mean, there was everybody who was anybody almost <laughs> was playing. Was I, I playing feel games. I feel personally attacked here. Well, no, that's, <laughs> there was a couple um, poor kids whose parents bought the wrong system. But no, um, they, most players were playing Nintendo and there was only one place that they could go. And there was, when a new game came out, it was a new game that everybody was playing. And today things are so diffuse and spread out that I don't think we'll ever have that feeling of, you know, we're all one, we're all in it, kind of playing the same game, trying to beat it um, or joining the same club. I don't think we'll ever have that chance mm. to feel that way again. So you had an iconic alter ego in the Game Master, and he was the main connection point between Nintendo America and its fans, as we talked about. Was it easy being the Game Master, being the guy, or was it ever a challenging face to put on? Um, you know, it was, it, it was pretty much always a, um, a joy until probably like, I don't know, 89, 90, when the number of games got to be unfathomably large you know like 300 plus games like you know it topped out at over 400 when i uh, by the time i left but that's a lot of games to to have beat everyone and to be on you know stay on top of it and be able to answer questions but also up until up until a certain point i was still kind of anonymous i mean there was my picture in the magazine and the comics and things like that but I could, and I could still walk around and pump gas and you know, go to the mall mm -hmm. and things like that. But then at a certain point, it all of a sudden just clicked. And you know, I could not just you know, get a Slim Jim at the, at the, at the gas station <laughs> without having a 10-minute conversation with a kid and his mom. And of course, you know, if some, there's some kid who recognizes you, oh my gosh, it's you, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then you want to you want to encourage them and reward them and, and, and give them your time. Uh, that said, if it happens a lot, you, you know, you the rest of your life gets, gets put in the backseat for it. So yeah, it did yeah. get a little bit um, difficult at the end, but that said, the majority of it is, a, you know, it was a really wonderful position to be in, mm -hmm. to be the, you know, the man behind the curtain who could, uh, you know, share all the secrets and, and provide all the, you know, the, the new and exciting news to, to an avid audience. It's exciting. Yeah. So yeah, Howard, a couple questions for you here. Um, I know you mentioned just a little bit ago about the Nintendo Game Counselor hotline and kind of starting that off. Very cool stuff. I mean, it looked like that was the kind of the first hotline out there for, for people to really uh, get their questions answered. Um, but after a while, some third-party game publishers started setting up their own hotlines, advertising those right on those game boxes. Yeah. Uh, was that something that you know Nintendo encouraged, or did you guys feel like it was taking money from your pockets? Um, well, the the um, the hotlines were not really uh, meant to be a, a money maker for us. Okay, they were just meant to hold on a sec. I'm going to go close the door. <laughs> <laughs> Howard Phillips, he's just like us. He's gonna, right. He's gonna... <laughs> I, I have had one kid come in already. Like I'm like, what are you doing? <laughs> and he's back. And he's All right. Back. So, um, actually, the hotlines were not a moneymaker for us. We just mm -hmm. ran them because it really was a way to kind of keep the heat um, high on on Nintendo and the Nintendo games and the systems. So, really, never thought of it as as a problem. If others did it. 
Um, the thing is, our, uh, it, it was certainly true, or at least I felt it was true when Nintendo Power Magazine um, started going and we had started having ads for other companies in it. Um, some of the ads would do what I would classically kind of wince at, which is show some awesome photoshopped um, uh, image of, you know, this action, et cetera, that really didn't look like anything in the game at all. Mm -hmm. And that was, that was a, a problem originally back in the Atari 2600 days. You've had this really hard sell image um, drawn on the front of a box, and then you yeah. get this really uh, wimpy, um, pixelated uh, gameplay. And so when I saw um, the ads of other companies in the uh, third-party publishers in Nintendo Power, I thought it kind of made me wince at times because they stepped across that line and kind of used over-promoted mm. use. To, um, the, you know, all, everything was amazing and, and, and blazing, and et cetera. We've, we've talked about that before on the podcast with uh, specifically Missile Command for Atari 2600, where the box of that, it's this guy like, you know, hovering over a console and there's this big nuclear war going in front of him. And then you fire up Missile Command, it's a bunch of, you know, pixelated lines going across the screen. So, so with, with the other um, uh, hotlines that other companies are putting up, you know, it, I really didn't think about it that much because I felt like we were, we, I really felt like we were telling the truth all the time, or at least I'm certain I was telling the truth. If I mm. thought a game was direct, I would say, you know, let's, let's make the, the uh, the mention of it like three lines in mice type on the back pages of Nintendo Power. If I thought it was a good game, I'd be there lobbying for like you know let's let's give this twenty pages because I think it's awesome. Mm. So I always felt like we were being authentic with our with our um, our coverage of different things. And when it came to the games, if you know somebody had bought some some esoteric game and wanted to talk to a game counselor about it. That was, that was cool as well. But I always felt we were giving, we were really just helping players enjoy playing, having more fun with the games that they purchased. Yeah. Yeah. And we have a, a gentleman who's been a frequent guest of our podcast, a nice bloke named Tim Gadler, who was a Sega game counselor a little bit later in the you know console days. But, you know, he has that same perspective. They When they started their con theirs, it was actually um, uh, no cost. So that it, it was really about just to help out the gamers. And he left before mm -hmm. it became a, a paying thing. But, uh, you know, he's talked very much about how it was really cool to be able to help out those kids. And, and although frustrated by some games like Alex Kidd and Enchanted World and those things. But uh, yeah, shout out to Tim. Thanks for being such a, a good part of the podcast. And uh, this guy, Mr. Howard here is a part of kind of, you know, what gave you a career, I think, a little bit there. <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of Sega, though, I read that after your Nintendo days, you once considered joining Sega of America as their spokesperson. So that's kind of like uh, when the Verizon Can You Hear Me Now guy joined Sprint. That would have been uh, <laughs> would have been pretty interesting. Can you share uh, any like details about your the conversations there or your decision uh, to not join? Yeah, actually, the, um, so um, there is a lot of... Uh, um, confusion um, based on different reports and different books that have been written and um, uh, by individuals and well you were there so <laughs> I, I read with great interest my my sitting down with Tom Kalinske and, and <laughs> when I never actually talked to Tom at the time and I know Tom he's 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 a friend um, but it, it was goofy that for the sake of, of novelization embellishment um, People just made stuff up. Okay. Um, so I, um, when I was looking at uh, um, moving on from Nintendo, 
Um, I did have conversations with uh, with Sagan. I talked to exclusively with um, uh, Toyota-san, uh, Shinobu Toyota. And um, I was not interested in being a spokesperson. I was willing to, um, I recognized that I had value as that, but, but that wasn't what I was interested in doing mm. um, to make myself happy. I was interested in helping pr- um, better product be made and, and, and starting out my career as a, as a external to Nintendo producer, director, uh, mm-hmm. game designer. I'd done a lot of second party producing and quasi producing at Nintendo, but hadn't, hadn't really um, defined myself that way. And, and, and uh, so I wanted some clear air to do that. And Sega was uh, going to give that to me. But then the closer we got to the date, the more I, I, I started hearing um, uh, the spokesperson, spokes, Sega spokesperson, mm-hmm. kind of working into conversations. And then um, Shinobu flew up to sign a contract with me, flew up to Seattle. And, and in the morning he was supposed to fly up, I woke up and I said, I just can't do it. Wow. Mm-hmm. And so I called up and they said, oh, he's already left for the airport. And I said, well, can you, can you, <laughs> can you, can you, can you stop? <laughs> and and uh, the answer was, no, he didn't stop. He got on the airplane. They didn't, you know, phones were, um, uh, I remember my first portable phone. It was as big as a lunchbox. Um, <laughs> and it was later. So he didn't have a phone. He got on the airplane. Long story short. I had to tell him sitting down over dinner that that I'd had a change of heart. It was one of the most embarrassing, uncomfortable conversations I've had in in my life. Um, I can bet. But um, it it was expressly because um, I didn't want to uh, spend uh, spend my time doing nothing but being a spokesperson. That's very interesting. That's cool. I can only imagine what campaigns Sega had in mind to roll you out. It just must have been, it must have been spent tons of time on that, but it's really interesting, Howard. And um, a few minutes ago, you talked about, you know, when you're talking about the early days of the NES, that you often handpicked those Famicom games to be localized for the U.S. market. Um, by the way, I also have a Famicom. I did, I have played some of those early games and I, could, I totally see what you're saying about some of them are, yeah, are not great. Um, but on the flip side, do you remember for, like fighting hard for any one particular game to come over? Um, well, you know, there was, there was a lot of great stuff was happening. It seemed like there was a lot of, um, rarely was there ever a game that, that was just not getting the support that it deserved. Um, occasionally those came up, but, you know, with, with the advances in MMC chips, the memory map chips, and, you know, mm-hmm. just getting bigger, more robust gameplay and more larger sprites on the screen and more stuff moving around and you know great colors and all of that um it was there was always just wonderful stuff you know it's like i always had a basket full of great games um that said i do remember that um one game faxanadu for whatever reason i thought it was a really good game and i mm-hmm. i pushed that one and then we ended up actually um bringing it over which i was i was surprised and and happy with unfortunately um, I think whereas the game was really awesome, I was not that into the um, uh, uh, packaging story theme of games as much as into the gameplay itself. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't care whether it's an alligator or whether it's uh, 
a hedgehog or, <laughs> or, or it's a plumber. I just, you know, was looking for good gameplay. But it, it turns out that I, I, at least in hindsight, I think one of the reasons that Faxanadu didn't do very well, um, even though I gave it a very high rating, was because it just didn't strike a chord thematically with players mm-hmm. like the other games that came out of the t- at the time. That's really interesting. Yeah, I do remember um, your feature on Faxanadu and some of the characters' enemies were pretty grotesque. It was a, you know, yeah, I could, I could see. It wasn't as, definitely wasn't as friendly as Super Mario Brothers or Zelda. <laughs> it, didn't, it wasn't as, as a, a, a comic-like. Things got a little, a little more serious, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but good game nonetheless, I agree. Um, well, you know, many of our listeners remember the beloved Howard and Nestor comic. You mentioned that a minute ago um, from Nintendo Power. So you, at the time, were senior editor of Nintendo Power. How involved were you in the creation and uh, you know of evolution of that comic? Um, it was a surprise to me. So I, uh, the way the magazine production worked is is we had a um, company in Tokyo called Workhouse, and they did magazine production, meaning that they did all of the screenshotting and all of the layout and et cetera. And then uh, editor-in-chief and co-editor Gail Tilden and I would fly over each month on like a, a, I think we left on a Friday afternoon. And then we'd get there and we'd, we'd arrive on Saturday afternoon because of the time change. And then we'd go out and we'd look at galleys and of the magazine. And, and after we'd done that for like three days for, for 12 or 14 hours straight, then, then they could take those off to the press. And then because we wanted to keep compress the time as short as possible between the final editorial and it being printed. And then we'd start working on the next issue and they would have, um, we would have already presented them with which games we think are the top games that should be presented, what level of coverage, and they would mock up what they thought was reasonable coverage for it. And in one of those, one of those meetings, we sat down after going through all the, the proofs for the previous month uh, or for the next month, but then the next next month, we sat down. They said, "Well, we want, you know, we've got this," and it was Howard and Nestor. And I thought it was pretty goofy, um, <laughs> but but you know, we had talked about ways that they could potent- we could potentially present tips and clues, and you know, you can do classified information, you can do pro tips, you can do reviews, you can do mini reviews. But then, what do you do if you've still got stuff you want to say? You don't want to just do yet again another tip or stuff. And so I had suggested to them it'd be fun if we came up with some way to present it, kind of like, you know, when I do when I was doing demonstrations, I wouldn't give people the answer. Or when I trained the, um, the customer service people, the gameplay counselors, I said, don't give them the answer, you know, kind of lead them on and let them be the hero and let them figure out what's the, the right answer, but direct and encourage them towards that. Wow. And so what they came up with was the Howard Nestor comic. That's cool. Well, well it had uh, some legs. It ran for quite a while. Um, did you happen to see the way they wrapped up that series? I thought it was pretty touching with Nestor. Yeah, you know, it, it, the, the one thing I loved about uh, working at Nintendo, um, and particularly in that time period, is the, the very uh, gentle, kind kind of soul to the culture. And that really showed through in a lot of ways, and and certainly in the um, the work that was done in the comic. It never, at least to my knowledge, um, I think I always tried to take whenever there was a some writing that put more of an edge on it, or more of a kind of mean, you know, anything that came close to being mean or anything like that. I 
you know, work hard to make sure that that came out. And so there's a lot of heartfelt, just generally kind, helpful, good relationship, of course, with a snotty little kid named Nestor, but (laughs) it was, it was all meant to be, you know, really um, kind, helpful, loving, et cetera. Very cool. Yeah, that, that's that's kind of the Nintendo reputation, I think, in general back then, for sure. And so that really held up there. That's neat stuff. All right, well, let's shift uh, gears and talk about our game of the month, Super Mario Brothers, which came out in the U.S. in 1985. Uh, first, yeah. Howard, can you believe that we're celebrating 35 years of Super Mario Brothers? Does it feel like it's been that long to you? Um, <laughs> actually, yes, but not. You think it does? I don't, it's not because I feel tired or anything, but it's it's like wow, you know, a lot. It it just feels distant. But yeah. um, that said, it this um, it still feels very very close. I can remember you know playing the unfinished game and being rope doped by Arakawa, um, you know, in the warehouse, sitting in a corner of the warehouse playing the game, and 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 him not telling me that the game wasn't finished. <laughs> yeah, wow. I kept getting to the end, to the, um, uh, to the very end of the game, and I would drop the bridge, and then I'd sit there and I'd go, okay, now, or, or I'd, um, I'd drop uh, uh, King Koopa, and I'd sit there and go, okay, now how do I, what do I do? And the bridge didn't come out. I didn't know there was the bridge. So I'd sit there and, you know, time's running down and I'd have like, at first I had like two lives or three lives left and I didn't know what to do. So I'd try taking a running jump and then think, well, maybe (laughs) if I jump exactly with my heel on the edge of the thing, I'll be able to make it all the way across the lava to the other side, you know, and try and then die. And then I'd I'd play it again from the very beginning, play it again (laughs) and, you know, save up all my lives. So now I'd had like six or eight lives. And then I'd sit there and I'd try everything I could think of to try and get across um, that gap. And then Mr. Arakawa came in, um, it literally just came, walked into the, to the, um, shipping office and kind of stood behind me and said, so what do you think? And I said, man, this is frustrating. This is terrible. I can't be, I've been to the end of the game. I had five lives and I had eight lives and you know, and I put my heel on the edge of the thing and jumped and I'm telling him all this stuff. I said, but I can't, I can't figure it out. What am I doing wrong? And he said, Hmm. And then he walked out. <laughs> I played, I, I must have played it like for hours for the next day and a half. And then finally he told me, he says, oh, the game is not finished. Ha <laughs> <laughs> Oh man, that's frustrating. They, they should have known that the game master would get to the end of the game. They should have known. <laughs> no, but, but an awesome, awesome uh, game to play, you know, back then playing a, a platformer that had so much depth was just mm. Incredible. Mm-hmm. Uh, many of our listeners have shared, and we'll talk a lot about this when we have our upcoming Super Mario Brothers episode, but many of our listeners have shared experiences similar to mine, which is coming from a system like the Atari 2600, turning on Super Mario Brothers for that first time, and then being presented with this world where you had all of these options and all of these choices. I could you know, play quick, I could play slow, I could, you know, I could climb things, run under things, swim, and it's just a unbelievable game for the time and it and it's of course kicked off this the series that's lived so well in, in uh, all these years but thinking forward about like how to get super mario to market did you, were you giving feedback to you know shigeru miyamoto like how, how involved were you in sort of bringing mario super mario brothers to market in the u.s yeah so my my interactions were were through um this is 
pre-internet. So I would, you know, write up notes on games, arcade games or on, um, on the games that the Famicom games. And I would send it, I would give it to Mr. Oda, who was like the office kind of quasi controller guy um, who'd come over from Nintendo Japan. And then he would write it up on a, on a blank piece of paper would, and, and translate it. And then he'd fax it over to um, Nintendo Japan and Miyamoto would see it and others would see it, you know, Yokoi and, and Weimura and Takeda, et cetera. And then rather than, it wasn't a dialogue so much as I would, um, I would uh, enunciate um, issues or challenges or problems. And then also maybe occasionally an opportunity here or there or something. And I thought it would be cool if, but I was uh, rather than, rather than you know, co-designing or anything like that, I was, I was working really hard to analyze what was there and if there was things that were that I was struggling with that I didn't think I should be struggling with or that that uh, the designer and Miyamoto didn't want me to be struggling with then then I you know try and be really clear on what specifically I thought was causing that etc. It's interesting. So you, so uh, you were also involved in some way with the the challenging arcade adaptation of Super Mario Brothers called Versus Super Mario Brothers. Um, how did that all come about? Yeah. So um, quickly, <laughs> um, that it you know, eighty five, eighty six was a blur. I mean, the number of new games that we had coming on board from Japan, from Nintendo, the number of uh, new licensees who had new games, the number of new licensees who didn't have games yet, but wanted me to look at games on other lame systems, like, you know, 7,800 or something. <laughs> then I, you know, so I'm, I'm looking at all these games all this time. And at the same time that was coming, was going on. Then we were doing, you know, get punch out, which is awesome Twitch game, uh, arcade game. And then we got the VS system, which, for at the time to me, I thought we were kind of almost done with arcades um, because of the, um, the Famicom slash NES. And then Takeda, you know, does this, this hat trick with, with um, Punch-Out, which was so great. And then we have VS and I'm going, well, why do we even bother having VS? You know, it, it didn't make much sense to me. Um, games that we were seeing uh, for Famicom and NES were much more unbounded long play games where you, you bounced up against your skill level or your knowledge level of the game. You didn't bounce up against some time requirement or, or time limitation. And the, obviously for, for arcade games, you've got to have some time limitation that's, that's either crank down hard on the difficulty um, or, or you do something such that it really shortchanged the, the players with their, um, the number of lives they can take for it, et cetera. And so I wasn't a big fan of doing VS games. I liked it. I still like the VS tennis, um, VS baseball, et cetera, because of the uh, two screens, you know, we get mm -hmm. different views, which was super cool at the time. So somebody couldn't actually see what you were seeing. Um, but when it came to, to other games, Excite Bike, Super Mario Brothers, et cetera, I, I just was not that enthusiastic about seeing them on, on VS, though I understand why we did it, but it, it was it wasn't on it wasn't a very important thing to me. 
Okay, that makes sense. Uh, on another topic, we uh, have been talking on Twitter with some of our listeners about a little guide called How to Win at Super Mario Brothers, uh, which I, I can tell you how to hand it in as well. Uh, I, I picked it up, a copy of it actually last week, and yeah, you, you flip oh, open you. the guide, and there's you right on the inside of it. <laughs> yeah. Front cover. Um, yeah, so I'm a super, a sort of Super Mario Brothers novice. I've played it a little bit over the time. Nowhere near as much as like Zach here. Um, but I just flipping through it and looking through some of the tips, it's, I found it super helpful. Um, so I just like kind of love to hear your ideas behind, you know, launching this guide because I'm a huge guides person. I use guides a lot. And it was really interesting to see like kind of an early version of that. Right. So um, understand it's a, uh, it's a group effort in yeah. the production of all of the, the, the tip books, et cetera. And um, I serve primarily as an editor mm -hmm. um, for a lot of the works. In other words, I'm a, I'm a not a great writer, um, but, <laughs> but I know my game details and I, I, um, I know when something is right or wrong or incorrect. I, and I know if it says it's, you know, three blocks over and, and it's actually two blocks or five blocks. I know that. And so um, I was very good at, um, at, doing a final edit pass on, on things that were done, whether it was Power Magazine or whether it was the, the tip books, um, you know, and then we did the, the bigger um, strategy guides. Mm -hmm. um, so having a, a very precise encyclopedic knowledge of the games, because I had I played them all and beat them all, um, yeah. literally was, um, was a critical component there. And so uh, in... Uh, in Japan, they would do the initial production of, of a lot of things. And then I'd step in and say, well, you know, this is a bigger deal. We should, you know, this is a tip that everybody needs to see. Um, that kind of that kind of editing oversight, but also work on that, you know, just go with my finger looking at every single screenshot and make sure that the screenshot is accurate to where it is in the game, you know, and that it's that it's not flipped, you know, it was Weirdly enough, occasionally you'd have a screenshot that was flipped. Um, but that was my, my primary contribution to things like that book. Um, and also, I think it, it, it spoke a little bit more to the persona of the Game Master. You know, if you want to know anything about Super Mario Brothers, here's the book that's, that's written by slash endorsed by um, the Game Master, you know, Howard Phillips Game Master. When in fact I didn't write every little word to it, but I certainly um, I certainly put my signature on it because right. I you know spent the time to make sure it was accurate. Yeah, it makes sense. There, you know, like anything of this, it it takes a it takes a few different people to do it. But you know, you really need to have somebody there who has that that not just the encyclopedic knowledge, but that like passion to be able to make sure that this thing is accurate. And this is, I mean, like I said, this is a fantastic little guide, and so I was really really pleased to be able to pick this up. Glad you um, like it. Yeah. So um, I know we probably don't have time to go into too many details here. This is a pretty big piece of, of your history, I think, here. But uh, uh, we've we've read over time that you were one of the voices that rejected the Japanese version of Super Mario Brothers 2, which yeah. kind of altered the course of history uh, there for the better, I would say, of the yeah. Super Mario series. So, you know, what about that decision? How, how, how easy was that to, to push across? Um, it, it was a it was not difficult at all. Um, mm. I mean, for me, it was readily apparent, like after five minutes of play, that there was just numerous instances where the game 
um, the design of the game violated the pact between designer and player, which is that you, you're fair and you don't cheat the player. And the way you can cheat the player is by delivering them um, um, hits or kills or deaths or decreases to health that are unpredictable. Um, you know, it's like if you, if you, what, what fun would it be to play a game where you just walk around in the dark until you get whacked <laughs> and they say, Oh, I'm not going to whack there. And then you walk a little further, you know, in the other direction until you get whacked, you go, Oh, I'm not going to whack there. And then after a while you've lost your lives and say, Oh, I'm ready to start again. You know, it was just with the poison mushrooms and with the wind and with the blase levels, the levels didn't look anything radically different from what we've seen in Super Mario. It was just a lame um, a sequel. And at the time, I was, um, Miyamoto didn't have this, this aura that he does today of being this godlike um, designer. I mean, he's, he is an blazingly wonderful designer, and I've had a lot of fun with his, with his designs. Um, but at the same time, he's just a guy. And I think there was a period um, back at that time when he, was, he got spread too thin across mm -hmm. Nintendo's products. Nintendo was just like Nintendo of America was small, and I was the fifth person on the payroll when we started out. Nintendo Japan was small. He was just an, an artist doing side art, side graphic arts and, and, and control panel art for the, for the arcade games. When, when he came up with an idea amongst all the ideas out of uh, across all of Nintendo, he came up with the idea for Donkey Kong as a, reef, as a retrofit for, for radar scope. And so he got anointed to be the kind of fast promoted designer. And there weren't any other designers around. You know, Yokoi could, was a good toy designer and Weyamura was good at his tech and Takeda was good at his tech. But there, you know, game designer was not something that, um, that was known at Nintendo. And he just, he just stepped up and started digging in and he did, he did Donkey Kong, he did Mario Brothers. And then, you know, when he did... Um, he was working on games like Zelda, which were taking a lot of his, his head and heart. And so I think Don, uh, Mario Brothers was, or excuse me, uh, Super Mario Brothers, the original one, was just uh, something that um, didn't get the, the love and attention that we, um, we know Miyamoto's capable of. And for that reason, it was really simple to just say no. Cool. Oh, wow. Interesting. Well, and, and the game, of course, is still, you know, something that, you know, people play today and it's become a really important part of, you know, the Mario history, oh, sure, sure. right? But I, I picked it up recently and I see what you're saying. I think I died two or three times just in that first couple of screens with the, with the poison mushroom. And there's also a jump where there's three Goombas. You kind of jump to do that triple, you know, stomp. And then there's a, you know, piranha plant right underneath them. You know, so it does feel a little tricky. So I see what you're saying. So I would argue that Mario is as popular today as he was back in the 80s, but he's definitely evolved since then. Um, what do you, so what do you think about Mario and, and Mario games today? Well, um, so I cut my teeth on classic arcade games, and I really like the, um, um, the kind of clear goals and, clear, and, and very, very challenging elements to them, um, and the somewhat sometimes very linear but other times some not completely linear but still you know like Zelda you got to put you, you you know where you have to go next you just don't know exactly where it is <laughs> you have to go find this thing but you don't know exactly where 
Um, I really enjoy that style of play and kind of unbounded play to me is, is not as enjoyable. Um, sandbox play, you know, it's like go, go throw your baton in the sandbox and like, oh, okay, now see if you can throw it higher. Um, it, it, at a certain point to me that loses its, its fun because I don't feel the, I don't feel the design and the designer behind the challenge, you know, mm-hmm. I, um, and I really like the fact that with with the classic games and the classic versions of, of uh, Mario, that that was very much the case. That if you you felt like if you got past a hurdle that the designer had put up for you, that you'd have a little bit of clear air, but you knew he was coming at you again. Mm-hmm. And more and, and and the more modern versions are more unbounded, more kind of pick your pick your adventure, pick your challenge, and that to me. Um, I lose, I feel a little more distant from the, the designer who's challenging me to play my best in that type of an environment. Um, so I guess I'm, in, I don't know if I'm uh, old school purist <laughs> or whatever it is, but I really enjoy that, that more of that uh, style of game than, than the more future versions. That said, love Mario Kart, love a lot of the, you know, a lot, lot of the expressions, um, I think it's done a wonderful, Nintendo and Miyamoto did a wonderful job of, of continuing to keep Mario alive and the world to get kind of richer and fuller. Definitely cool. agree. Definitely yeah. agree. So the retro game guys, you know, we're big advocates for video game history. Um, and we understand you are as well, and rightfully so, as you shaped video game history firsthand. Um, now you donate time to the Video Game History Foundation, I understand. And that's a group of... Uh, a group that some of our listeners of this podcast will recognize. So can you talk a bit about your involvement with the Video Game History Foundation? Sure. I, um, Steve Lynn introduced me to Frank Cifaldi, and I, I know Steve Finn from, uh, Lynn from his collecting uh, activities, and I um, have now got to know uh, uh, Frank. Frank's a great guy. Um, and they have, they have, I think, a wonderful um, perspective with, re- with regard to um, uh, video game history, and that's that. Not only is it a lot of junk and crap that we all, you know, had when we were kids or younger, but it also is connects us to a time in our lives that was really meaningful and heartfelt. And you know, you could you can remember when you showed your older brother a trick or something, or when mm-hmm. when um, you became the hero hero at the playground because you did X Y Z in a game. But it harkens back to a time in our lives where there's you know, a lot of innocence, joy, and et cetera. And so to that end, I'm very supportive of their mission, which is to preserve and share um, history of, of um, video games. And to me, that's much more about the just, just doing the thing. It's not, it's not preserving and sharing our opinions about it so much as it's preserving and sharing what it actually was. Because... You know, you, you can pick up a game that you haven't seen for 30 years and it will transport you back, you know, to that moment when you were 11 years Absolutely. old. Playing. Absolutely. And so to me, that's a, it's, and, and those are, you know, wonderful um, moments for a lot of people. And so I think the Video Game History Foundation has got it right in working towards just pure preservation and then eventually sharing as they, as they can um, all, their, all the things they, they acquire. That's great. Well, we fully support their mission as well. Absolutely. And, and, you know, having you know two small you know kids myself, you know, I've been bringing them into this world of you know '80s and '90s video gaming, and they they love these games, the simplicity, the fun, the excitement, and 
we want people to not, I mean, game preservation is great. We want to preserve the history, but you know, so much of this is getting people, gamers today, to play games from back then because yeah. they're wonderful pieces of art. And everyone should experience playing Super Mario Brothers for the first time. I feel like that's like uh, an entry point for all video gamers, right? It's such an important part of history. So yeah, we definitely mm -hmm. support them. Um, and if our listeners are interested in the Video Game History Foundation and you wanted to donate and help the cause, you can go to gamehistory.org. Um, so Howard, I wanted to ask you these next questions on behalf of our co-host JP, who we call the obsessive collector, because you mentioned yeah. collecting a minute ago. Mm -hmm. uh, I know he's sitting up in his chair right now listening to this. Um, so over the years, you've amassed uh, a very large and frankly mind-blowing Nintendo game and memorabilia collection. So as a huge NES collector myself, I'm dying to know, what are some of the favorite items in your collection? Yeah, so um, I guess I, I'm, I'm not a collector so much as a pack rat. I just don't throw stuff out. <laughs> and, and so, um, you know, a few years ago, I just dug through boxes and went, hey, this is kind of interesting. And then I ended up sharing it on the internet and a lot of people were enthusiastic about that. Um, but as of today, I mean, th some of the things that, I can pick up and they and they transport me back. One is my original uh, Game Boy game that's got my initials carved in the back of it because Don James kept stealing my Game Boy. He'd take my Game Boy off the desk. <laughs> and then I'd say, you've got my Game Boy. And he'd say, that's not, it's in your Game Boy. And I said, yes, it is. <laughs> and anyway, so I had to carve my initials in my Game Boy. I mean, it's silly to think about that in the office setting, but I did to keep it. Um, and, and then also to look at it and how awful and ugly that that puce colored screen is on it you know but still mm -hmm. it was so cool at the time to, ha to have that um those things are are that's a, a cool one the other thing is um i did keep um i don't know how i ended up with them but the uh, the original proofs for the very first uh, howard nestor comic which for some reason you know at the time i didn't think it was any big deal but they said mm -hmm. they rolled it up and said here this is for you you know who, who knew i was going to hang on to it for, for that long i actually made a cop a good copy of it and and um steve Wynn has that now and i think it's on its way to the video game um history foundation very cool um but those are those are a couple of them that's great that's great well, dustin over to you yeah, yeah. So just a couple questions. We're getting towards the end here. Um, so wanted to know kind of what's up with you nowadays. What are you uh, working on? Not playing, not playing the 7800. Um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So what are you up to these days, Howard? Yeah. So um, um, I'm uh, um, spending a lot of time working on a project that I haven't announced yet. It's, it's actually a history preservation related pro um, project. And uh, Probably sometime a little later this summer, you'll hear, hear something about it. Um, awesome. It's been very interesting for me. Um, I thought that I knew a whole lot about um, Nintendo and the world I was working in um, through the 80s, but it turns out that um, there's, a, there's a number of things that I was blissfully, naively ignorant of. And, and then there's also a lot of things that, going, um, that I'm finding that... Uh, this project is causing me to um, remember and relive a lot of those great moments. Um, so stay tuned. Absolutely. Awesome. We'll, we'll definitely be out for that. Yeah, definitely want to share whatever news you have when you're ready. Uh, yeah. So how can people find you? Do you have a social media presence or anywhere that you're sharing these things nowadays? 
nothing right now. <laughs> um, I do have a, I, I've got a Facebook page and, and, you know, I've, I've got a Twitter handle and et cetera, but you know, you just look up game master Howard or game master H or something like that. I can't even remember, but I don't, um, I don't spend a lot of time with those um, now because I'm, I'm too busy focused on content, not on, not on uh, promotion or marketing or anything like that. But at a certain point, um, those I'll be much more active on those. Yeah. And when those projects come out uh, and you get more active, I, I think I can speak for everybody on the podcast and all our listeners and saying that we're going to, we're, we're really looking forward to that. We'd love to hear more from you and see more about uh, the history and, and, and the things that uh, you were able to bring to light. So yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah, totally. Great. All right. Well, Howard, before we let you go, would you like to play a quick game here today? Uh, it's not the 7800 it's me back to when um, I was doing <laughs> some promo work for Nintendo and I would go do um, do press tours and I do one show where you know they'd like okay at 6 30 you're going to be on the morning shock jock show and then at you know at eight o'clock you're going to go to this school and nine o'clock you're going to be on this television program blah 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 well at 6 30 in the morning I woke up and I called up the radio program from the hotel phone I'm sitting there and these guys are yakking it back back and forth and they're not being very kind and then one and then a guy says okay now let's play a game <laughs> he said, I want you to, have you got a touchstone phone? And I said, yeah. And he said, okay, do you know Mary had a little lamb? And I said, yeah. And he said, well, I want you to play Mary had a little lamb with your nose. And I thought, yeah, I'm a gamer, right? I'm a gamer. So I said, so immediately challenge on. I'm thinking, okay, can I remember which tone is in which number, right? So I say, hold on, hold on. And I go, I touch a couple with my nose and it, you know, it goes beep, beep, boop, boop, and, I, and it's not good. And I say, wait a minute, wait a minute. And then I said, okay, here we go. Da, 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 da. And I said, well, that's all we got to hear from them. And then they ring off. Oh. So, but, and I was doing it too. You know, I was there, I was in it. Oh, well. So sure, let's play a game. <laughs> well, uh, no nose required on this one. Um, on the keyboard of the uh, computer. Right. That's amazing. Uh, well, we call this game the hot seat. So we're going to ask you to pick between two things and, and you just give a rapid fire answer. So the idea is not to overthink it. Let's just have some fun. All right. Yep. Um, all right, Howard Phillips, let's get in the hot seat. Here we go. First question, Mario or Alex Kidd? Oh, Mario, better game. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'll even agree to that. Yeah. Uh, forklifts, easy to drive or a pain in the rear? Hey, you know, they're great toys, but you shouldn't drive them like toys. We did, but you should not drive them like toys. They're big, they're heavy, they're dangerous, they can flatten your toes. But they're a lot of fun to drive. <laughs> Sounds like there's stories there. We'll get into those later. Uh, a bow tie or bolo tie? No bolos. No, I wore a bow tie because um, uh, long ties back at back in that time period, like the mid '80s. You know, people were doing disco and they had these big, fat, wide ties that were really. It's like almost like you got a cod piece on or something. I mean, you had these big. It's like, how wide is your tie? So, oh, mine's really wide. Yeah, sure, it is, buddy. But um, the bow ties were were great because I. Before Nintendo, one of the things I did is I worked in the restaurant um, as a restaurant manager and as wine steward. We'd run around quickly. And when you go around corners, if you have a long tie on, you would be surprised how much 
um, mass that tie has and feels like to you when you go around corners regularly. It's like, man, I don't want this thing dragging on my neck. So I just started wearing bow ties back then because it's the way to go. And no bolo ties. That's not, that's, <laughs> that's just crazy. That's too metro for me. <laughs> did, you, uh, did you keep any of your bow ties? You still got any of them hanging out? <laughs> I still got like, but I don't know, three dozen. Yeah, again, oh, I'm a pack rat. I'm never going to throw them out. <laughs> wow, wow. Please don't, please don't. All right, here we go. Uh, next one in the hot seat. Hashtag Sega household or hashtag Nintendo household. You're kidding, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> oh, sorry, Dustin. Well, I, made, I, made that call, I made that call 35 years ago. No. Um, <laughs> there Sega, there's a lot of cool, fun games on Sega. Um, we just don't have the magic, that's all. All um, right. Here you go. All right, so uh, this, this question comes from Dustin. Uh, it was late last night. We may have had a couple of drinks ourselves. Uh, classic Coke or New Coke? You know, um, you don't spit out things you drink very often, but I do remember <laughs> spitting out the new Coke. <laughs> like if you That's have awesome. Coke, you got to have a classic Coke. And you get that feeling, it's like, and no, I'm not, this is, and it's gone, right? <laughs> there you go. Yeah. All right. Uh, I know many of our listeners will be interested in this one. Zelda 1 or Zelda 2? Oh, come on, man. Zelda 2 sucked. Wow! Well, it, right. <laughs> it was bad. I mean, well, it wasn't bad. I mean, it was a decent game, but Zelda One was awesome, and Zelda Two with the kind of gangly, you know, big elbows and knees. Link, you know, was too big on the screen. He was. He wasn't nearly as as zippy and fast to move around as as Link as uh, Link in Zelda One. So obviously Zelda one. It, All right. That come on. <laughs> <laughs> and lastly, I think this one's a little harder. Yeah, Rob the Robot or Virtual Boy? Uh, um, wow, that is a little hard. I'm thinking, how what criteria would you use? Um, Gunpei Yokoi's watching. So, so, you know, Rob was, Rob was much more magical than Virtual Boy. Virtual Boy was cool, interesting tech. Uh, you know, not good gameplay. Same with Rob, you know, zero gameplay. But it was just so cool that you could set him there and you'd tilt his little eyes so they looked up at the television screen. And then when giving demos, you could say to somebody, look, if I, you know, if I do this, Rob watches the screen. If I push this, then Rob sees it and he moves his hands. And then I can say, now watch, I'll put my hand in front of his eyes and he doesn't see. And everybody would just like their jaw would drop. It's like, he really can see. So <laughs> that, that tech was just so magical back then, you know, using the V blank tech where it mm-hmm. you know, looks for the flash on the screen and reads off that and uses that in order to define Rob's actions. It was pretty magical back then. Just like, you know, the zapper, the duck hunt gun was pretty cool. Yes. Wow. So Zap. Rob, obviously. There you go. <laughs> All right. Well, th- Howard, thank you again for joining us on the Retro Game Guys podcast. I hope that you know you brought so much fun into our lives and this interview was no different, had a ton of fun. Absolutely. Uh, do you have any parting words uh, for our, our, our audience? Uh, yeah, keep up, keep playing and keep having fun. Um, just, you know, just cause you're get older like me doesn't mean that you shouldn't be having fun every single day. Awesome. awesome. Okay, yeah, guys, uh, that wraps up this very special interview as part of our second podcast anniversary and Super Mario Brothers 35th celebration. Thank you for listening and game on. The opinions and views expressed on the Retro Game Guys podcast represent the views of the speaker alone and are not the views of our employers.